For many in our culture today, biblical Christianity is a dangerous idea, challenging some of their deepest beliefs. In her book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin explores the hard questions that keep many people from considering faith in Christ. Listen as Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin explores how we can share our faith in a way that is relevant, winsome, and true. The co-founder of Vocable Communications, a firm focused on data and speech, Rebecca McLaughlin has long been drawn to helping individuals tell their stories in the most compelling way possible. Her own story has seen her serve as the vice president of content for the Veritas Forum, going to Oak Hill College to study theology, and earning her PhD in Renaissance literature at Cambridge. And in April 2019, she released the book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. Rebecca, thank you so much for chatting today. It's great to be here. So I'd love to hear, uh, just kind of right out of the gate, why you released the book now. Uh, Why do you think the church and even culture needs this book uh, in this moment? In 1994, the historian Mark Knoll published a book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, in which he made the bold claim that the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. Hmm. I think since then, if that were true in 1994, I don't think it's true today. God has raised up thousands of Christian professors at some of the top universities in the world in all of the fields that are supposed to have discredited, disproved, or sort of blown apart the Christian faith. And the nine years that I spent at the Veritas Forum, I was able to actually focus on unearthing some of these folks, getting to know them, learning from their research, hearing their stories. And so the the book is very much an opportunity to showcase their work. I think these guys are the greatest untapped resource of the global church. And I guess my attempt in the book was to curate some of their work and insights. And I think that's something that's needed today. So you don't think there's a scandal, at least in the way that Noel put it in 94, anymore today? I guess today the scandal is that we are not making the most of the evangelical minds that God has raised up. So was there something that, was there kind of a concrete moment where it clicked with you that this book needed to be written? Or was it kind of over the time of uh, working with Veritas that that kind of produced this this desire to to write this? Yeah, I think there were two streams that came in to play and kind of flowed together. So one was, as I say, spending nine years working with these folks and yeah. realizing that both in the university and outside, both Christians and non-Christians, there was a massive information gap between what the best Christian minds knew when it came to science or philosophy or history or the arts mm. and what was trickling down to the rest of, of the world. And in fact some of the, the very ideas that were discrediting Christianity on college campuses were ones where Christians were world leaders in, in those very fields. Okay. So there was that stream of feeling like, oh, there's this massive information gap, and I don't want to keep this all in my own head. I yeah. want to make this accessible to Christians and, and non-Christians. I think there was a, another stream um, which connected up for me personally and uh, maybe connected up with some um, you know, broader cultural issues, which was... When gay marriage was legalized, I felt heartbroken, honestly, by the the ways in which the church was uh, messing up our witness on on these questions. So it seemed to me that there were, broadly speaking, two ways people were going. There were well-meaning Christians who uh, were repenting of the homophobia that they may well have been brought up with and throwing out the authority of the scriptures in the process. 
And then on the other hand, there are a lot of churches that seem to be doubling down on a kind of culture wars, them and us mentality, which seem to me to be sub-biblical and unhelpful and, and destructive both to those within the church and to our witness to those outside. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have been romantically attracted to women since childhood, and that wasn't something that I had been talking about even to many of my closest friends at yeah. the time, but I, I felt um, something of a call from the Lord to be just a, a tiny little piece of the church's witness on those questions in particular, hmm. because I think what we desperately need on those questions and what I think the Lord is increasingly giving us is actually more and more people who can speak from profound personal empathy because yeah. these issues are their issues. Right. Absolutely. Is that hard? Has that been hard for you to engage that in a public way and writing about it? Yeah, I, I think um, my temperament is such that I, I tend, uh, I've had friends say, you know, your, your head is about three miles ahead of your heart, which <laughs> certainly can, can be the case. Yeah. And so when that impulse first arose from me, I thought, hmm, there's part of me that just wants to, to start writing and speaking on these issues now oh, sure. because I feel the need. Right. Um, but there's also a recognition that there's probably a lot that I need to, uh, you know, work through more, more personally um, in terms of you know, talking with friends and just figuring out how best to articulate these issues from my own perspective within my immediate community in order to then be at all equipped to speak into a, a broader um, cultural setting. Well, it's obvious that there's a, a tremendous amount of your own kind of personal uh, faith, trust, whatever you want to call it, mm. poured into this book. Also a, a tremendous amount of just work in general, right? Um, and yet, as you mentioned, it's very accessible. I think it's going to be already has been and will continue to be widely read um, by, by, by many people. Uh, as you put this together, as you work through this, as you did this research, uh, did you find that, how did this affect sort of your own faith? Uh, you know, as I think about you writing about taking the Bible literally, and, and you, you, you have a whole uh, chapter on that, which is really powerful. Um, I'm curious, you know, like in that particular topic or any of these things, uh, how did that deepen or deepen your faith, maybe challenge what you believe, that kind of thing? I think the chapter entitled How Can You Take the Bible Literally was the most fun to write yeah. because my PhD is in, in Shakespeare and metaphors, in particular prison metaphors in Shakespeare, okay. believe it or not. And when I went from um, grad school to seminary, one of the things that I noticed was that the only person who seemed to like metaphors even more than Shakespeare was Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And people seemed to have this wooden idea that we either take the Bible literally or we don't. And that if we are looking at a verse or a passage and interpreting it metaphorically, then that is somehow undermining or selling out on the authority of Scripture. Sure. When in fact, Jesus uses metaphors all, all day time. long. Yeah. And some of his most challenging teachings are actually delivered through metaphors, like when he says, uh, enter through the narrow gate. Yeah. For wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction and many find it. I mean, that's, that's no easy scripture yeah. and yet it's encased in a metaphor mm. and so i think we have many beautiful life-giving metaphors that come to us throughout the scriptures of scriptures and from jesus in particular for example when he talks about being the true vine uh, it, it's not that i lack faith enough to believe that he is actually a plant right. but he is connecting with this incredible old testament metaphor of god's people as the vine but i think Actually, as we look at, at how Jesus uses metaphors and how the scriptures use metaphors, we can take things a step further and say that whereas 
when you and I are using metaphors, we're looking around the world and noticing connections between one thing and another and saying, oh, this is like that. Yeah, yeah. We're trying to compare what we see. Yeah, but yeah. When, when God makes metaphors, because he's the creator, <laughs> he's actually doing it from, from the ground up. So if we think about the biblical metaphor that compares God to a breastfeeding mother... For example, Isaiah 49, verse 15, can a mother forget the baby at her breast yeah. and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. It's not that God looked at human mothers with their infants and thought, oh, that's a, a beautiful little picture of how I love my people. Mm. It's actually that God created motherhood in the first place and breastfeeding as an experience to reflect so that, that we would yeah. get a little glimpse of how he loves us. Yeah. And, and, and likewise, and I think this is particularly important for us to understand in any conversation around gender and sexuality it's not that god found male and female and sex and marriage lying around and thought oh that's a little bit like how jesus loves the church yeah he actually created these things in order for us in our lived experience to have some tiny mm. echo of jesus's love for the church and that as somebody who has always loved metaphors just blows my mind yeah well and it, it takes these common things in our lives you know like when like you mentioned when we make metaphors we're just taking common things in our lives and it adds this whole divine supernatural mm -hmm. experience to mm -hmm. them like the, the the metaphor of marriage and the relationship of christ with his church it's just this unbelievable divine thing that we have no business understanding and yet god has created this yeah this I metaphor know. that's I, exactly that's so beautiful um in the book you mentioned that when you first moved to the u.s you were uh, bewildered by, I think that's the word you used, you were <laughs> bewildered by the uh, connection between evangelical Christianity with racism. So I'm just curious, you know, when you moved to the U.S., what did you experience to kind of bring up that, uh, I guess, surprise and confusion mm. and, and sadness mm. with that connection? I think it's heartbreaking. I, the New Testament is one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest, text against racism in all of history. Yeah. Jesus broke through every racial mm. and cultural barrier of his day, and he commanded his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. We see the first African Christian in the book of Acts, the yeah. Ethiopian eunuch of yeah. Acts 8, and we have a vision in Revelation of people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping Jesus together. Mm. So this is our destiny as Christians, and the fact that through... Uh, human sin expressed in the, the cancer of, of institutional racism in, in, in the church, um, you know, particularly in America's history. I think that's, that's heartbreaking, and, and it's heartbreaking in ways that impact every area. So it's heartbreaking because it's, uh, it, it tends against the justice that emerges from the heart of God. Yeah. Uh, it's heartbreaking because it means that we are not living as one body and knit together in love as the New Testament calls us to. And let's be clear, the, the, the racial and cultural barriers in the first century were at least as real as any ones we experience in our culture today. And Christians were being thrown together across all sorts of awkward social and experiential differences. Sure. And expected not just to tolerate each other, but to love each other right. like brothers and sisters and like one body and like one family. So I think we miss out on all of that. I think it's also horrifically destructive to our witness. Mm. We act today as if diversity was, is a kind of creation of, of the, the liberal left, when in fact, you could very well argue that Jesus invented the whole idea of diversity. Mm. And that's something that, that we should own and live into and yeah. be the, the first um, uh, to experience and proclaim. I, I think that the one thing that was really encouraging to me, actually, 
in this respect in terms of writing the book well actually two things one was just the miracle of the black church in america um and the the gospel witness that it is that despite a history of slavery and a history of of racial injustice um, that that god has called so many black americans to himself yeah. across you know centuries now and the other is is the the extraordinary blessing of immigration that mm. um america the american church experiences so i think some white americans worry that immigration is eroding america's christian heritage in fact immigration is a much needed blood transfusion for the american church and so i th- i think we are beginning to see or you know certainly seen for decades but seeing more and more the, the vibrancy of christianity coming um, in this country from people of every tribe and tongue and nation yeah. from across the world. And that's yeah. that's a beautiful thing. Well, we could probably spend a couple hours on this topic. <laughs> That'd be a separate chat. Uh, but I am curious, you know, this book is so, uh, it's such a powerful read, but it doesn't just leave you with a book. And like I just feel practical conviction and, and practical steps that we can take to once we confront these questions and mm-hmm. what do we do with that. And mm-hmm. so in this particular topic, in your own experience, um, how do you think American churches can live up to the ideals of, of biblical diversity? Mm. I think one mistake that we make is thinking that our church experience on a Sunday ought to be comfortable. <clears throat> mm. I actually think church should be quite uncomfortable in, in a funny way, in one sense, we should feel like we are going home and that we are meeting with family on a Sunday and that that should be a deeply grounding and, and joyful and relaxing experience. Yeah. On the other hand, if we're not having conversations on a Sunday morning that are genuinely hard work for us because we are having to relate to people who are different from us because they're significantly older or because they come from another country or because they have a different racial background or because they have a different educational level or because they have different cultural experiences. If we're not doing that hard work, then then we're actually missing out on the richness that God is is giving to us. And I think it's so easy for us to default to talking to people like us, whatever that means. And it's not that there's anything wrong with me talking with another woman from the same educational background, the same racial background, the same cultural background, etc. But actually, if that's all I'm doing on a Sunday, I'm I'm missing out on seeing how Jesus is at work in the lives of my brothers and sisters from all sorts of of other places. But but let's be real about the fact that that's that's hard work for all of us. And we're all going to make mistakes in that process. Yeah, well, and you say forming those bonds across differences is as intrinsic to community as or to Christianity as singing, which I yeah. love. You know, it's it's not it shouldn't be this kind of tangential experience, but actually part of of what we're called to, as you mentioned, to being one body and to being united across those differences. As you've uh written, released this book, talked about this book, uh shared it with so many people, uh, I'm curious what kind of advice you might have to to those kind of feelings of mm. This sounds great, but yeah, there's a lot of tension here, and, and I just don't think I can do this. Yeah, I, I'm not equipped either, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, I think all Amen. of us, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, all of us in Christian community and all of us in Christian witness ought to find ourselves to be quite inadequate to the task mm. very regularly. And I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer is very helpful on this, where he talks about disillusionment. Yeah. Um, and he says, you know, if we're lucky, 
we will experience profound sense of a profound sense of disillusionment with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate with ourselves, mm. and that that is not the end of Christian community, but but the beginning, because we're not together as people who have it all together. We are together as depraved, useless sinners who've been brought together by Jesus. And so I think we need to recognize our inadequacy and appeal to the Lord for help in that and recognize that we need each other for help with that as well. Like we need, we need each other for challenge and encouragement. Yeah. It's a lifelong pursuit for sure. So that's tension kind of within the Christian community, you know, forming uh, bonds across differences just with, with fellow believers. Uh, But I see this book, honestly transcending those differences between faiths and between people who don't believe what I believe or who are almost antagonistic to what I believe. Uh, what has the sort of response been as you've seen this book released and talked to so many people uh, with that line between Christians and, and non-believers mm-hmm. or, or whatever you want to call that? Mm-hmm. What I've really tried to do in this book is to only make claims that will stand up in court mm-hmm. or at least... <laughs> Let me clarify. <laughs> Clearly, this book is making the outrageous claims of Christianity, yeah. which will always be outrageous, will always be offensive, and will always look foolish. Yeah. No question. However, I think we too often leave an obstacle course of barriers that our non-Christian friends need to, to kind of clamber over before they even get to the offensive rock of Christ. And what I've hoped to do in this book is to, to clear some of those barriers away and I, I think the the opportunity to be able to sit down with with non-christian friends and to say hey you know this chapter is actually drawing on research from harvard or mit right, on, yeah. on these questions and so we're kind of we're looking at the same data together and maybe having very different interpretations but we're at least looking at the same data um and it's been super encouraging i mean the, the book uh, thanks to a friend who's a mit professor and also a, a ted fellow was on the TED summer reading list. And I thought when, when my friend Roz suggested it to them, I was like, clearly <laughs> they're not going to, they're, they're going to catch that this right. is not the kind of book they want on their reading list. Yeah. I honestly don't think they actually read it. They probably would have decided that if they had, but you know, there, there it is. <laughs> um, and I'm going to be speaking for the National Geographic in, oh, wow. in February, which is just exciting to have any opportunity with, with non-Christian organizations to say, you know, hey, here, here are some of the, the, the best Christian thinkers on some important questions um, that I'm kind of trying to, to channel into yeah. the, the quite sort of secular bloodstream, bloodstream, and it's been encouraging to see that response. That's amazing. Uh, this book, I think, presents so much hope as you, as you read it, as you sit with it, uh, thinking about you know, Bible studies reading through it or communities reading through it, churches embracing this kind of tension and, and living into it. Uh, what is kind of, if you have, I'm sure you have multiple, but one kind of hope that you have, how this might affect the the broader church? Mm. I think we Christians in the West are spending a lot of time wringing our hands when we should be playing our cards. Mm. I think we have a lot more cards to play than we wow. realize. Yeah. And again, none of this is to say evangelism is suddenly going to be easy or everyone in Times Square is suddenly going to give their life to Jesus. No. Though maybe... Yeah, yeah. But I think we. But it's need still to, outrageous. Like yeah, you said. it's still outrageous. But we yeah. need to recognize that that Jesus is truly the best hope for the modern world, and that's actually something that you know we Christians take on faith. But 
you could sit down with a, an atheist and explain to them why Christianity actually objectively is the best hope for the modern world. Yeah. And I think we need to lean into that and yeah. recognize that, yeah, we have more to say than we might think and that Jesus is at least as beautiful now as he was 2,000 years ago. Amen. Well, this book, I think, is a great step in that direction into leaning into that and living this out. Uh, confronting Christianity, 12 hard questions for the world's largest religion. Is there uh, a need for a sequel for 12 more questions as you've, as you've been going through uh, this? There's actually already a sequel coming, which is a junior version aimed at oh, 10 to 14 year olds. Oh my gosh. Uh, it'll be 10 questions. Wow. And the idea is to make it a accessible for that age group version of the book that will be more readable for those folks and also avoid some of the more harrowing sure. parts of the yeah. book that just wouldn't be age appropriate. Well, Rebecca McLaughlin, thank you so much for your time thank and you. for this book. Thanks for listening to today's teaching. We pray that it challenged you and encouraged you. You can find more resources at gospelandlife.com. Just subscribe to the Gospel and Life newsletter to receive free articles, sermons, devotionals, and other resources. Again, it's all at gospelandlife.com. You can also stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter.